Let's turn to Zechariah. I feel like I've been reading far too long. But let's go to Zechariah chapter 9. And today's text is verses 9 and 10. Now, this comes uh, following on the heels of uh, an oracle of judgment against God's enemies. But this is good news. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. And the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Once again, my God, bless bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these great promises that you have recorded for us in Scripture We also praise you for these great fulfillments of these promises that have been recorded for us in Scripture. And so may our hearts rest in the fact that you are a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. And for those promises that still remain, uh, help us to remember that you are faithful and you've proven yourself faithful time and time again. And so as we hear of this promise kept, may we be encouraged this morning encouraged to trust you, encouraged to believe your promises, encouraged to rejoice in Jesus the Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, Handel's Messiah is one of the most famous pieces of music. And as we talked about during the Advent season, um, when Handel's Messiah came out, it was wildly popular uh, in London and in much of England. And the pastor, John Newton, was a little concerned about this. Uh, he was concerned because people were enraptured by the music. Uh, people loved to hear Handel's Messiah. They loved to go to the performances of it. But he knew by the character of their lips and their lifestyle that they didn't believe the message of Handel's Messiah. They loved the music. They didn't love the Messiah. And so what Newton did was he engaged in a lengthy number of sermons upon the texts that John Newton, uh, that, uh, that Handel used in the course of his Messiah. And so they began, of course, with the incarnation and they moved all the way to the death and resurrection, uh, culminating, of course, in the hallelujah chorus. And so today we find ourselves uh, in one of the texts that Handel used and that Newton preached on uh, with regard to the triumphal entry of Jesus. And that text is Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. This is about, of course, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. This is one of the uh, events, there's only a couple, that that find themselves in all four gospel accounts. And two of the gospel accounts in Matthew and in John, they actually quote from this prophecy in Zechariah 9. The others uh, don't mention it for other reasons. But as we we look at this particular text here in Zechariah 9, uh, 
I want us to first ask the question of what is the emotional response of the people? Because events create emotional responses. Uh, it's, it's unavoidable. Uh, God has made us as emotional beings, and that's okay for us to express strong emotion at times. And so uh, what is the emotional response that is at work here? And I know I just made some of you Presbyterians incredibly anxious. I talked about emotions. But nonetheless, the Scripture talks about emotions. But before we really get into that, let's remember the context here. Uh, Zechariah was written after the Babylonian exile. And so we have uh, Cyrus has already given his great edict, um, and many of the people have gone back to the promised land. Not all of them have returned to the promised land. Uh, Cyrus has died, and Darius the Great is now the ruler of the Persian Empire, which... Israel is part of. And so uh, Israel has no king of their own. There's no no king of no no one from the line of David that is king at this point in time. They're still under the power and the authority and sometimes it felt like the thumb of Darius and the Persians. The Persians who had an eye towards an even greater kingdom and uh, we see elements of that in the not too long ago movie The 300 as uh, Persia tried to invade Greece. They were trying to expand their kingdom through warfare. So this is what's going on. Zechariah is speaking into the religious and the political turmoil uh, that Israel was experiencing at that point in time. And so he's looking ahead. He has this oracle that God has given to him. And uh, as a result of this oracle, it's rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Uh, They were commanded not to lament, but to rejoice, to express incredible joy, to express incredible gladness is the idea that's at work here. Uh, Now, again, this is not in the present for the the people that Zechariah is speaking to. This is is responding to this future event. This is a future joy. This is a future gladness that they are intended to express. The next sentence or parallel phrase is the idea of shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, and referring to the same group of people, but this is a slightly different phraseology, not just the, the cry of joy, the shout of joy, but this is usually used of a song of victory. And so it's a particular kind of joy. It's the kind of joy that follows a victory, a victory that occurs on behalf of the faithful in Jerusalem, otherwise known as Zion. He's speaking to a people who who were familiar with sadness. And that's important because uh, when, when cities are all too familiar with sadness, they can nearly explode with joy when great things happen on their behalf. In recent memory are two. I, of course, grew up in New England, uh, not too far uh, from Boston. And so events in Boston still have uh, particularly profound meaning for me. And uh, for 9-11, one of the planes uh, that crashed into the Twin Towers was originally out of Boston. Uh, That plane contained a classmate of mine in high school. I didn't know her. I don't claim to know her, but it impacted so many people uh, within New England, just as it did New York City. 
And so uh, when that season of football was suspended and then resumed, and somehow the Patriots not only got to the Super Bowl, but inexplicably won the Super Bowl for the first time. Okay, Now some of you have, have uh, Patriots fatigue, and I completely understand that. Um, but I, I might remind you, as I watched a uh, documentary on Drew Bledsoe, uh, that, that before Parcells came, the Patriots were a joke. They had only gone to the playoffs six times in the first 30-plus years of their existence. And so this, this community that was um, overwhelmed by, by the events of 9-11 suddenly just broke forth in joy. There was an event that hit even harder the heart of Boston because in 2011 during the um, Boston Marathon on a New England holiday known as Patriots Day, which celebrated the ride of Paul Revere and the battles of Lexington and Concord, um, or Concord, depending on what part of New England you come from. <clears throat> many had died and many had been maimed. And I remember weeping in my office, uh, seeing the, the news of what had happened, because uh, that's sort of like a holy space, in a sense, to me. And when the Red Sox won the World Series that year, it was just, again, this incredible cathartic release and the, almost like a shout of victory. That's what I have in mind when I read this text. This incredible, uncontainable joy that erupts because this joy is received in the midst of, of prolonged sadness that is now over, that is now done. What we see here is something similar to what we see in, in Isaiah 62. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And so here is this picture of your salvation is coming, but then it gets personal. It's as if the salvation is in a person because his reward is with him. His recompense is before him. The salvation is wrapped up in a person in Isaiah 62. And now here in Zechariah, he's building upon this and he's clarifying it. This salvation is wrapped up in a person and that person is going to be your king because he says, Behold, your king is coming to you. This is why you rejoice greatly. This is why you shout with a voice of triumph. Your king is coming. He's arriving. This is not about Darius. This is about the restoration of Messiah. The Davidic king that they've longed for has arrived. Now, the days of fulfillment, the days of Jesus, are 500 years after this prophecy of Zechariah. The people have been waiting that entire time for the king to come. They've gone from being under the thumb of Persia to being under the thumb of Greece and to now being under the thumb of Rome, neither of which they liked, each of which was ultimately opposed to the religion that they wanted to express, opposed to the way of life they wanted to live, corrupt and immoral in so many ways, filled with power and corruption. This prophecy 
that is given here about rejoicing and shouting aloud uh, echoes what we see in Psalm 118, uh, which is one of the the halal psalms that they sang on the pilgrimage. And so it was appropriate that they would usually sing this psalm, 118, as they're arriving in Jerusalem for the Passover. And so what's pertinent about this one is not simply a a psalm about longing, but now it is a a psalm about fulfillment because they're believing that Jesus is there to fulfill that promise. Your king is with you. And they're recognizing Jesus as that king in Jerusalem on that day. They believe that Jesus would take up the throne of David. They believe that Jesus would begin to deliver them from the power of Rome. Both, as I mentioned, both Matthew and John cite this passage as the framework for the people of that who read their Gospels to understand that event. Christians still believe that Jesus is the greater son of David who currently reigns upon David's throne. And so the arrival of Jesus brings joy to weary hearts. That's the emotional side of this. A second question that I think this text really wants to answer is, uh, what is it about Jesus that brings joy to weary hearts? And it's, it's not just about emotional response. There's got to be a reason for the emotional response. And this text includes the reason for the emotional response. As uh, Jonathan Edwards noted, holy affections are responses to truth. The character of this king is different from the power-hungry tyrants that the people were used to. Uh, whether it was Sennacherib, okay, one of the kings of Assyria that conquered the northern kingdom, uh, whether it was Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, uh, whether it was even Cyrus who conquered Babylon, uh, Darius who was the king at the time of this, or whether it was Caesar, Tiberius, who was um, reigning at the time. Corrupt, power-hungry, concerned for themselves and not really for the people. What is the character of this king that is coming to the people of Jerusalem? Righteous and having salvation is he. His rule is just because his character is just. He is fully righteous. And the reason those other kingdoms were corrupt was because those kings were corrupt. And this is the longing that is going to be fulfilled in Jesus, that can only be fulfilled in Jesus. Because deep down inside of each of us, there is a longing for justice, not simply the exercise of power to benefit your tribe, your group of people, your friends, but Justice, ultimate fairness, each person getting their due, not people getting away with murder because of their status and privilege, not other people being pressed down and exploited because of their status and lack of privilege. Justice. Jesus' rule 
is not just about justice, but his rule also brings salvation or deliverance. Uh, They might think that it was the catastrophe that was Rome. (laughs) That's what they're looking at. They're looking at this in terms of political deliverance, but that's not what God had in mind. But we see this connection with with justice and salvation in a number of places. But I want us to look here from Psalm 68. Uh, One of the passages that's been kind of on my mind a lot lately uh, because of a devotional I was reading. Uh, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. And so we have a picture here of the God who brings salvation, the God who is salvation, but who daily is bearing up people who have no strength, people who are weary and in need of help. This king, in other words, comes with a very different agenda. He's not coming to rescue you from uh, some political entity. He's not coming simply to uh, deliver you from a disease like COVID-19 or cancer or anything else. But what he has in mind is the deliverance from sin and Satan, death and Hades. He's coming on a far more profound rescue mission than we tend to think of or tend to want because we feel the tyranny of the urgent, not the distant that we kind of press away. And one of the benefits of a pandemic is that it reminds us of our mortality And the one day we're going to have to be accountable, we are going to be held accountable for what we have done and not done. And most of us, if we're honest about that day, recognize we cannot stand in that day. And we need someone to stand for us, to bear us up. And that person, as we're seeing, is Jesus. And so faith in Jesus includes Repenting or or turning away from our personal agendas in order to submit to his government, his rule, because he's king. And so it's dying to the kingdom of self and beginning to live for the kingdom of Jesus. Now, in those days, in the ancient Near East, as well as in Rome, Uh, When the king was victorious and came to his capital to rejoice with his people, the the parades there displayed wealth beyond your imagining. They displayed military might, so they would have the chariots. They would usually have the prisoners that they've taken kind of way in the back and on wagons and cages or in long lines and chains. Uh, It was meant to be a display of the power and the wealth of the king that had been gained because of this victory. What do we see with Jesus? Humble and mounted on a donkey or riding on a donkey. This word humble also has that idea of being lowly and afflicted. This is This is a humble king as well as being a lowly and afflicted king. He's not coming from power and privilege. He was a common person 
not wealthy at all, who had experienced much hardship because he was a man of sorrows. His arrival is not about pomp and circumstance. It's not about the size of his army. It's, It's not about all of the wealth that he displays or tosses into the crowd as tokens. This points, I think, again to another one of those things that wearies us deep inside. I believe we're weary. Maybe I'm just projecting my own existential reality on others, I'm not sure. But I believe that we are weary of self-aggrandizing politicians of various stripes. Politicians and people in power who see everything, it seems, as opportunities to gain more wealth and gain more power. They're the exact opposite of Jesus. Jesus does not come upon a war horse. Jesus comes upon a donkey. Donkeys, well, I guess they're dangerous in that they can kick you like an ordinary horse would. But donkeys are generally not dangerous to anyone except coyotes. That's one of those things I've learned in the last few years because I live in Arizona. And there are lots of coyotes. And one of the things that some people do to protect their horses or livestock is to get a donkey. And it's been bizarre for me to see pictures of dead coyotes in the jaws of a donkey. Uh, But there you have it. Not a very fearsome animal. This is not a war steed. Uh, This is not a a quarter horse uh, that has armor upon it and and all sorts of um, signs of wealth. It's the coats of his disciples. How unassuming is that? (laughs) Jesus comes riding on this young foal of a donkey. Solomon rode into town on David's donkey. Now, I know the ESV translates it mule, which is different than a donkey, uh, but I, I should have checked. I'm pretty sure it's the same word that we find here in Zechariah, which is donkey. Um, but nonetheless, Solomon rode into town not with threat of war like Adonijah was preparing to do, but he rode into town peacefully with the benefit of uh, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah, who was the, the chair or the, the leader of the bodyguard for David. What we have here is the greater Solomon, uh, the son who is going to fulfill the promise or the prayer of Benaiah that his kingdom really will be larger than David's, and it will last forever and ever. But let's note from the accounts in the Gospels that this was not an accidental thing. Jesus was conscious of what he was doing. He sent the disciples out to get the donkeys. He knows this is the time, this is the week, when it's all going to take place. The promise is going to be fulfilled now. The scripture is going to be fulfilled now. So he rode into Jerusalem on that day. He did not ride in, as I've mentioned, to defeat Rome, but he came to defeat this universal and timeless enemy, sin and death. And so Jesus is the the lowly king devoted to justice and salvation. That's the, the character of this Jesus. That's what this Jesus is about. 
The third question that the text points us to, or, or answers for us, is, is what does Jesus' reign produce? What's the, what's the fruit of this reign? What's the, the end goal of this reign? Zechariah brings us to the incredibly stark difference between Jesus and all of the other pretenders that have come before him and have come since. Imagine this for a moment. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. First is that idea of cutting off. We see that throughout the Old Testament. It could have the idea of a limp of killing, uh, of exiling, or eliminating. And I believe eliminating is really the idea that is at work here. Uh, this Messiah is going to eliminate something significant. And that is the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. Now, part of this indicates that I believe war is going to cease in these two cities and precisely between those two cities. There had been a long history of conflict between Ephraim, which was the capital of the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom. They had centuries of war against each other. War will cease in these places. War will cease between these portions of Israel. But there's something else, I think, that's kind of intended here. Because the word for chariot can refer not simply to the chariot, but can also refer to the horses that pull the chariot. And interestingly enough, the word for war horse can also refer not just to the war horse, but the rider. If my mind just tends to go towards Exodus 15. The, the song of Moses after the defeat of, Israel, of Egypt at the Red Sea. Then Moses and the people sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Okay, so there is, right there, victory song, right? Uh, just as the people of Jerusalem, the daughters of Jerusalem, were supposed to sing a victory song. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord in his name. And so we see Yahweh as this incredible warrior. And here is Jesus, this incredible warrior, who doesn't look like a warrior because he's riding on a donkey. But he is the warrior par excellence. He's going to bring about the end of war. This continues with the third part of this parallelism. The battle bow shall be cut off or eliminated. It's a simple word for bow, but the context does, does indicate it is a battle bow. We see this, of course, in uh, Genesis 9, talking about God will hang his bow in the sky. His battle bow is put away. This is not a gun ban. But the fact that armies are no longer needed in order to spread this kingdom or to defend this kingdom, that's what it's getting at. How is Jesus going to spread and defend his kingdom? What are the weapons that Jesus is going to use to do this? 
Well, if we look at Ephesians 6, we see the armor of the Lord, armor of God that's there. Uh, Jesus wore that armor, and it's metaphorical armor. It's not physical armor. But Jesus wears this armor, and now, as his people, he gives his armor to us to wear as we continue to go in this battle. But the armor that he wore was truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the Spirit and the Word of God. That's what he wore. And Paul likens these things to belts and breastplates and helmets and shoes. Uh, But these are what's really, what's important. Not external material armor, uh, but that we are walking with the truth. uh, That we are receiving the righteousness of Christ. uh, That we have received and walk in and spread this gospel of peace. And so Jesus comes with this armor that we see in places uh, in the prophet Isaiah and a couple of different places, he wore this to engage in this battle in Jerusalem. As a result of this, he shall speak peace to the nations. The God of peace is going to declare the peace because he brings the peace not by the death of others, not by the elimination of his enemies, but rather by his own death for his enemies. His own death for those who were helpless. His own death for those who were ungodly. His own death for while they were still sinners. Jesus comes to bring about peace through the laying down of his life upon the cross. His rule, his reign, is not just for Israel, that is for the whole world. We see this not just in that idea of he's going to speak peace to the nations, but it goes from sea to sea, it goes to the ends of the earth. Anywhere they could imagine, it will spread. And since that time, it has spread. It is covering the face of this earth. Jesus is continuing to speak peace to the nations. And people are embracing that peace by faith and with repentance. See, this is the Jesus that John Newton wanted his congregation to believe in. This is the Jesus that I want you, whether you're a member of Desert Springs or some other congregation or not even a congregation, to believe in. This Jesus that we see from Scripture Because this Jesus brings peace by the cross and not by the chariot. He brings it by the cross and not the sword. He brings it by the cross and not the threat of thermonuclear war. He brings it by the cross. Let's take these three threads. Let's put them together. And our big idea becomes that Jesus is the lowly king of peace who refreshes the weary, I guess I could say, by his reign. Newton's great fear 
was that people would love the music of the Messiah without loving the Messiah they sang about. The truth is that people can like a lot of things about church. Uh, They can miss the whole point of church, which is that of believing in and loving Jesus as he's revealed in Scripture. And in this portion of Scripture, we see the lowly King of Peace who comes to restore peace by offering himself as a peace offering in our place. Do you believe that peace between you and God needs or needed to be restored? Do you believe that peace between you and other people needs to be restored? I think that's sometimes our problem. We don't see the need for this. Jesus is the only one who can restore that peace. Because Jesus is the only one who bore the penalty of all the sins that broke the peace. And Jesus came in humility and tenderness to bring us back to God, not to destroy us. That is the Jesus we find here today. Let's pray. Great and almighty God, as we await our Redeemer to appear again from heaven to gather us into his blessed kingdom, grant that we may patiently bear all evils and all troubles. And as Christ, once for all time, poured forth all the blood of the new and eternal covenant, may we never doubt that he will always be merciful towards us. And after having been supported for a season under the burden of miseries, he shall share his glory with us, which has been procured for us by the blood of Christ our Lord, and which is set daily before us in this gospel, and laid up for us in heaven, until we at length shall come to enjoy it through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.